Welcome to The Recapables, a podcast on the Ringer Podcast Network. I am not Bill Simmons. I'm not Mallory Rubin. I am not Sean Fennessy. I'm Allison Herman. I write about TV for TheRinger.com. And joining me on the other line, it's our Billions recapper, Miles Surrey. Hi, yes, I'm Miles Surrey. <laughs> Are you ready to talk about the sixth episode of season three of Billions, the third Ortolan? Yes, I'm so ready. And, you know, I might just have three birds to uh, satisfy my craving. Got any more? I'm still a little peckish. You know what they say about Ortolan? One is bliss, two is gluttony. How about three? Let's find out. I actually realized while I was watching this episode, did you know the Eastern District of New York, the workplace of Brian Connerty and Oliver Dake, is mere steps from the Ringer New York offices? Is it really? Yeah, it's the Brooklyn location. So the Southern District is Manhattan. And then when Connerty complains in this episode about seeing it uh, being sent out to the boonies, he means literally across the river to Brooklyn Heights. That noted slum. Oh, ouch. <laughs> well, may- maybe he's been reading the news about all these uh, gigantic rats eating chipotle burritos right next to our office. So that is pretty concerning. Yeah, this seems like a matter for the federal law enforcement's attention. I hope they'll direct their energies there once once they've cleared this case out. <laughs> So uh, we're going to start with just a 42-second recap of the entire episode. I feel a little weird queuing myself up for this, but I'm about to start. Are you ready, Miles? Good luck. Okay. While Chuck tries to find a way to plant his ill-gotten toxin slide in the Axe household, Connerty is given a hard deadline to find evidence, preferably Axe's fixer Iceland, in a week, or he will grant Axe's motion to dismiss the entire case. But then Spiros throws a wrench in everybody's plans by discovering Wendy's ice juice short from the last season's finale and immediately handing over the evidence to Connerty before asking permission from Axe. Axe contemplates taking a plea and Chuck turning himself in, both to save the most important women in their lives. Everyone meets for a really tense summit in Axe's bachelor pad, where Chuck makes the fateful decision not to plant the slide and work with his worst enemy instead. A lot of stuff happening. Yeah, this is a big, big episode with developments, especially, I mean, they did sort of foreshadow Chuck and Axe maybe being on the same team, Wendy talking to Wag. I believe it was last week when she was like, wish I could get these two in a room, and sure enough, there they are at the end of the episode at uh, Axe's penthouse, and I guess they're sort of on the same side. I, I don't fully trust either of them to actually go through with this for very long. I mean, it's one of those developments, Wendy being the person who suddenly changes this enmity dynamic and causes them to think about someone, if not something other than themselves, I think was one of those developments that feels inevitable in retrospect, but really shocking in the moment, which is why I think it was it was such a smart direction for the show to go in. But I was curious what you thought of of the tone of the episode. This is definitely not one of the the laugh line heavier installments of Billions we've gotten. Yeah, this episode was pretty weird. I mean, the first thing we see is uh, in the episode is Axe and Wag in a candlelit room with napkins covered over their heads. And I honestly was not familiar with the eating practices of Ortolan at that point. I had to Google it later, so I was already starting on the wrong foot. I thought we accidentally started the next episode of Twin Peaks or something. So yeah, it really looks started off a bit strange. Yeah, it looks like they're doing some weird rich guy Illuminati Knights Templar cult ritual, which turns out to be not that far from the truth. But yeah, this is one of those things where. Billions is not what you'd typically describe as a dramedy that's usually like a autobiographical comedian show on FXX, but this is 
one of those things where you realize like the show can be really, really funny. And then when it wants to, it can remind you that there are real stakes and real relationships that people care about that go on in this episode. I just thought it was such an interesting elevation of the conflicts of this entire season in a way that, you know, they were foreshadowing something breaking with the Wendy Chuck axe uneasy truce last week. I just didn't foresee it being Wendy in jeopardy. Yeah, me neither. And and I'm also just uh, pleasantly surprised with the show, how quickly it moves through these, these developments, because, you know, it was like, I think, the halfway point of the first season that, Chuck versus Axe was pretty much, it, it became a lot of uh, under-the-table maneuvering because Chuck had to recuse himself from the case, and yet somehow, you know, I, I assume that the show would probably take its time with, like, dealing with Axe and Chuck going head-on, but they skipped through that halfway through the first season. So the fact that this is developing this quickly, I think, speaks to how well the show is paced. It, it feels like one of the few, you know, hour-long plus shows that actually justifies its runtime every week. I never feel like the show's just, you know, going through the bases because it wants to hit, like, 58 minutes or something. It feels like everything is carefully constructed, and, like, when you see everything come together at the end of the episode, it's really satisfying. And, you know, I immediately want to see the next one. I wish they had the series up right now. I totally agree. What do you see as the significance of Chuck and Axe being on the same side? I mean, Axe has always been this amoral figure, I personally have been broadly team Chuck because I see him as at least being on the right side, if not for the right reasons. But the ethical decision of Chuck to, you know, I can't believe like not planting a piece of evidence to me reads as slightly more unethical. But the the decision to basically like enter a conspiracy to subvert justice with his arch enemy, I thought at least was like a real turning point for Chuck. But what do you think about this this new alliance? Yeah, like they were pinned in such a corner that, you know, it it comes down to self-preservation. Obviously, just sitting down at that table is extremely painful for both of them. So they really have to be pinned in a corner. And that's exactly what Carnegie did. I mean, he's he's pretty much what Chuck uh, wanted him to be when he was mentoring him back in the first season. He's cutthroat. He's basically playing it by the books. And unlike Chuck, he's he's actually holding... (laughs) holding his end of the bargain in terms of sticking it, uh, like sticking with the legal side of things. And so is Dake sort of, you know, he was obviously uh, Chuck had him under his wing for a while because of uh, how he got him the job. I think that's, that's the thing is like currently putting them in the corner. They, this is the only way that they're going to survive. And even though they're both somewhat amoral people, um, they're going to find a way to survive. They're both like, <laughs> cockroaches in finance and in the legal field. Yeah, there's also this weird House of Cardsy element where Chuck seems to still believe that he can run for governor and is not compromised in any meaningful way, not his marriage, not his ethics, even as he's like potentially about to be federally indicted. So that actually brings us to our first award, which, as always, is the most scarring moment. We didn't have any interludes with the Martinez's this week. We didn't have any, you know, direct incestuous makeouts, but we did have some some stuff on the, on the table. So why don't you tell us uh, your most scarring moment of the week? Sure. So mine were both uh, food related. Uh, Chuck eating very greasy pig's ears with uh, blackjack foley at the beginning of the episode, and then Axe and Wags eating ortolan um, at the end of the episode, which is how we find out that they're covering their faces with a napkin to eat a succulent tiny songbird, which is a French delicacy. Um, They're both pretty gross just by virtue of both being very, very greasy meals. And, you know, Billions is one of those shows that, you know, food is currency in it 
uh, in the show just as much as money. And obviously, these are two very decadent, greasy, disgusting meals for the characters to eat. And I think it really speaks to um, just what they're going through in this episode. And basically, they're they're willing to get dirty to uh, save their skin. Yeah, Chuck eating the pig's ears really was like shades of Tony Soprano, like shoving cold cuts into his face directly from the fridge, which also, you know, I think we should mention that Blackjack Foley, the sort of New York political kingmaker played by David Strathairn, comes back in this episode. You live in, were you able to recognize where they were eating with all the like weird toy pigs in the background? No, I wanted to look it up, but I, I never had a chance to. Did you recognize that place, or did you find no. enough to Google it? It felt like a really... Uh, I felt very called out on my, my lack of New York restaurant knowledge. I feel like I've <laughs> I've been away for too long that I wasn't able to immediately identify. But, you know, it, it is a nice reminder that this, like, gubernatorial run is something that Chuck... That is still on Chuck's mind, that he's still working towards. We don't know how realistic of a goal that is. And um, we should also mention that when Axe and Wags are eating Orsalon, they are not alone. They are with uh, one of the better chef cameos, I would argue, the best since David Chang. I was going to say, I actually did not recognize Wiley Dufresne, so that was news to me. (laughs) Miles, you haven't watched enough Top Chef in your life. He's a a staple judge. I have not. I mean, I never had... I I, I live and die with Chop, but that's about it. I also thought it was a weird uh, Wiley Dufresne sort of... uh, you know, oeuvre is molecular gastronomy. He loves like mists and vapors and foams and like weird, archaic, medieval bird eating rituals are are not necessarily his wheelhouse. But I guess, you know, when you're when you're being paid that much money by uh, two hedge fund bros, you'll you'll do anything. So my my most scarring moment was Chuck Sr. and Jr. have something of a reunion in this episode. Chuck thinks that he is going to jail. He thinks he's going to turn himself in so that his wife isn't liable for shorting ice juice. And he shows up on Senior's doorstep. Senior basically says, what do you want? In true, like, cranky old man fashion. And uh, Junior just gives his dad this tender hug, which almost perfectly mirrors Senior showing up on Junior's doorstep and giving him this unexpected kiss. It's not, like, as directly scarring. It just mostly gave me a trauma flashback. And there's also something really weird about... Paul Giamatti does a really good job of, like, taking on this little boy vulnerability whenever he's in his dad's vicinity or in Chuck Sr.'s vicinity. And it's just very uncomfortable to watch Chuck, like, put himself in that position. Yeah, it was also, um, I guess, all things considered, pleasantly surprising that um, Chuck Sr. didn't belittle his son in the moment. He seemed to really have some modicum of sympathy for him. Um, you know, when he lets him in the door and he gives him that hug, I think he realizes, oh, my son actually <laughs> might be in trouble now. And it's not uh, from my own doing, so maybe I should help him out a bit. Yeah, he's also weirdly like, okay, maybe you're going to jail, but we need to make sure Axe goes down too. <laughs> Which, yeah, he's just as in on this like blood feud as as his son is. So we should probably move on to best quote. This was not the most quip-heavy episode, but it's a Billions episode, so there's a lot of, you know, good, hefty chunks of text. So what was your best quote of the episode? Oh, man, I I would just, the entire scene with um, Judge Julio listening to Axe's case with uh, Connerty and... um... Glenn Fleshler. We'll just call him Glenn Fleshler. Yep, (laughs) that works. Yeah, Judge DiGiulio, we should also note, is the, the judge who's presiding over this case because... 
Chuck specifically made sure that Leonard Funt uh, of You Got Funted fame recused himself. And so he is dramatically more favorable to Connerty relative to Axe, but he's still skeptical enough that he's willing to entertain the idea of dismissing this entire case on the grounds of lack of evidence. But uh, while he is explaining this, he dropped he dropped some real uh, funk knowledge. Yeah, he does. I, uh, you know, it sort of reminded me of MSNBC's Ari Melber, where, you know, if you watch like last week tonight, they did like a compilation um, of all the times that he just randomly quotes uh, rap lyrics on MSNBC. And that's exactly <laughs> what I thought when it's like listening to Julio just randomly quote free your mind and your ass will follow from George Clinton. And then ending that with, in the case that bar, you can't take the funk. And as much as I want to dance to your tune, if the groove isn't bad enough, I'm just going to stand in place and right now my feet aren't zapping, which um, I, I actually needed to pause the episode and just like give myself a moment to breathe after that. And um, yeah, I think it, 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 that's probably one of my favorite quotes of the entire season, honestly. It's very belabored. I would also like to ask, you know, I'm not a lawyer. I have my JD from Law and Order University. But is it really wise to like bring an entire federal case to trial when you don't have real evidence is that like do you really investigate your your thing while you while you have the charges pending don't you don't you wait I mean I know there was sort of a extenuating circumstance with the ice juice uh, trap that Chuck laid but really bizarre uh, case making decisions on the part of uh, the Eastern District of New York I thought yeah especially since they aren't aware that Chuck was trying to hire a Congolese spy to plant that uh, ice juice evidence in Chuck's penthouse, which obviously that doesn't come to fruition, but I was really curious to see how that would happen because those two security guys uh, that that Axard seem pretty uh, well equipped. I was not sure how exactly that was going to work, and I guess we'll never find out. Yeah, also more for the, like, Chuck is as much a dirtbag as Axe in many ways camp. It sounds like he was using this Congolese man's family's immigration status as very crude leverage to get him to help out. Uh, just really, really not inspiring leadership there from someone who's supposed to be on the on the moral side of the angels, you know? Yep. And honestly, if it wasn't for the Spiros Hail Mary, then Carnegie wouldn't have a case at all. Oh, Spiros. We will we will talk about him later. But for now, my favorite quote of the episode is from Dollar Bill recovering from a bad week last week, does not seem like uh, publicly fucking up Spiros's car really had any material consequence for either of them. They seem to be at this weird equilibrium. But, you know, they're talking about whether or not the feds know anything, which is why Axe brought this motion to dismiss just to so that they have to say what they know publicly in court and they can respond to it basically to test whether Chuck has had time to plant this slide. Turns out he is not. Dollar Bill says... He has a hunch also that he is not. He says, I'm right. I feel it in my nads. Wags takes the bait and asks, are they ever wrong? And he goes, senior year, senior frogs. Other than that, 100%. Usually Wags is the one dropping cryptic allusions to his hedonistic past with uh, hookers and strippers and whatnot, various substances. But I'm, I would like to know more about this interlude Dollar Bill had probably in somewhere in Cabo San Lucas. That's just like the implication I got. But I always love a a good display of hedge fund douchebaggery. But while we are on the subject of good quotes and Spiros and how much he sucks, can you give us uh, the pop culture reference of the week? Not not a lot of them, but I thought, you know, quality over quantity here. 
Yeah, definitely. So when uh, Spiros goes to Axe's office to talk about uh, an idea he had where um, because Wendy shorts on the Ice Juice IPO right before um, the stock craters and, you know, he gets a boatload of money from it, he suggests that they basically have Wendy take the fall so that um, Axe doesn't have any legal ramifications hit him. And after um, <laughs> Axe says, quote, if this was the four by 100 relay, you would be disqualified from sniffing glue on the team bus <laughs> because uh, Spiro makes an illusion that he's passing him the baton for their hypothetical relay. Um, he says he went full le carré, meaning he already gave this information to Carnegie without telling Axe. Yeah, he engaged in some some covert spycraft that uh, did not have the result he intended. We should also mention, you know, there's a lot of like ins and outs of this plot that I wasn't able to get into that recap. So Spiros does all this after Chuck has approached him and said, you know, you should plant this slide. And then that way, when Axe Capital goes down in flames, I will get you a good uh, uh, you'll be immune. You'll be back with the SEC. Everything will work. And he goes, you want me to be a cuckoo bird, but I'm not a cuckoo bird. I'm a golden eagle. And he proceeds to mimic golden eagle noises in a really... Not a good mimic. Yeah, he's not not really a, you know, the guy who plays Spiros does a good job, but Spiros himself is, is maybe not destined for the acting trade. And so after Spiros, in his mind, has decided to act not against Axe Capital, but in their favor, he proceeds to totally fuck everyone at Axe Capital through his own arrogance and stupidity. So just real bad week for Ari Spiros, which I'm sure we will revisit in a few minutes. But for now, we'll move on to the MVP of the episode. Tough episode for a lot of people. Kind of hard to decide who comes out here the best because everyone's in a real compromised position by the end. But who's your MVP? So uh, my MVP is Wendy. And I'm sorry, I just saw Infinity War last night, so the Avengers are still fresh on my mind. But you know, Wendy uh, made me really think of Nick Fury just getting a team of people who don't really get along together, in this case, Axe and Chuck. And just getting them in the same room was a huge accomplishment in and of itself. And I just love that the little dynamic between Chuck and Axe, like when she asks them both to sit, Chuck does it immediately, and Axe comments that he's basically obeying like a dog. And I swear to God, Paul Giamatti snarls like a pit bull in that moment. And yep. it's one of the funniest things. Yeah, the show's ever done. <laughs> it's really absurd. I would also like to add that uh, Wendy is not a character who really sounds like she should be swearing with quite the profligacy of every other character on the show. So every time she drops a like fucking like she always does that weird enunciation. But uh, she has a good good quote this week about you two. I don't have time for your puerile bullshit because you two at your absolute fucking worst win at each other like a couple of pit bulls. And it's really like an audience member or the writer's room showing that they are, you know, either voicing their frustration with the characters and also showing that they are aware of what an insane and stupid dick swinging contest this all is, which I think is what Billions really needs to do to really work as a show is to show that they are they are in on the joke. They realize that neither of these guys are heroes. But yeah, I, I thought Wendy, you know, under the circumstances, I think you also see like how much both men involved value her. Mm -hmm. I think the fact that um, Axe, I mean, because when you think about it, what Spears presented to him actually makes sense. And I do feel like if it was any other employee other than um, 
Wendy or Wag that would take the fall for him, he would do it in a heartbeat. I mean, he was willing to let one of his coworkers die of cancer before Christmas because that helped his legal situation at the time in season one. So I, I think that demonstrates more than anything else how much he values Wendy just not just as an employee, but as a person. Yeah, he also like immediately, you know, he barely wanted to give up his ability to trade and that was enormously difficult for him. And he immediately says like, okay, I'll take a plea. And he meets Lara to inform her of this. And notably when she asks what made him consider changing his mind about this, he basically goes, eh, no reason, doesn't matter. So that's still, he still values her more than any other woman in his life, including the mother of his children. So I think that really speaks to what Wendy has been able to accomplish there. So my MVP is actually a much more minor player in the episode, again, because I don't think the the main action really produced any real winners. But one of the, the nice little side plots that we didn't necessarily get a lot of, but just the right amount of, was Taylor and Oscar's Silicon Valley hookup has become a long-distance relationship, which I did not even dare to hope for last week. I just thought that was going to be like a one-time deal. But Mike Birbiglia is back. He is FaceTiming Taylor from their, med- their respective meditation rooms. And Taylor is attempting to build a quant algorithm. They are not allowed to be party to the sort of high-level legal negotiations. So they're just focusing on being good at their job, which they are. And Mike Birbiglia's character, Oscar Longstrat, is just an unfailingly supportive romantic partner. He sends flowers that have... He brought snacks. He brought snacks. And he also sent flowers that are coded after the Fibonacci sequence, which is just such a gloriously nerdy gift from two people whose first date was at a Netrunner tournament. And he also shows up and Taylor basically was like, oh yeah, like, so you want to help? And he goes, no, I'm just here to keep you company. I know you don't need help, which I just, you know, I take what I can get in the Billions universe. This is, I didn't even dare to hope for like anything resembling a mutually supportive, healthy relationship. I'm just overjoyed. This is great. So my my MVP is Taylor. Um, unfortunately, I'm still a bit skeptical about Oscar. Oh no. I just, I, you know, I like him, but I just don't trust any relationship to be healthy for even a short period of time in billions. Like I was thinking the other week that Connerty might have the healthiest relationship before Taylor and Oscar hooked up. And he was fantasizing about sending X to jail mid coitus. Occasionally he even admits. So I, I do wonder if, um, and again, I just wildly speculating here, but what if he takes Taylor's algorithm and tries to profit off of it for himself? Uh you're really hurting. I mean, I think you have definitely internalized the lessons of billions better than I have, which is that everyone is out for themselves. Don't trust anybody. Self-interest is the most reliable motivation. But, you know, for now, I'm just I'm just enjoying this for Taylor. They they really deserve. They're not in the middle of this legal brouhaha. They're figuring out how to fill Axe's shoes. They're doing a cool new project and they have a healthy long distance relationship. So. They're my vote. I really hope you're wrong, but I think you might be right. But I think now that we've gotten that out of the way, we got to do the LVP. So before we do the real LVP, I think we need to honor the the traditional uh, recipient of this award who shows up for the first time in several weeks, literally just to rain on Axe's parade. That would be Lara, who basically says when Axe tells her, I'm considering taking a plea, great, so I'm going to take the kids and move to California and you won't see them at all while you're on the inside, which, you know... Harsh but fair, but also, like, that is literally her only function in this episode is to just 
be mean to Axe. And she's just not a character who who has a lot to do or a lot of purpose to serve in the story now that she's removed from the main action. But I think you you have the real LVP of the week in my in my humble opinion. Yeah, I mean, you could probably give this award to any in any episode that Spiro shows up in, but he was in prime bad form this week. I mean, we talked about uh, what he did with Wendy, but you know when and Chuck approaches him about potentially you know going against Axe Cap and and I guess quote unquote working for the good guys again. Um, Chuck brings up the rape case um, that he still has you know hanging over his shoulder, and after having that I'm not so some cuckoo bird Chuck and then making the horrible eagle noise. He says, we're not in Hollywood. And then later say it loud enough. They might even make me president, which just hit so hard. And I think that was probably the most overt Trumpian commentary that Billings has made yet. And and I'm glad they saved it for that moment because I actually think it really landed well. And it just reaffirmed that Spiros is just a god awful person, is a rapist and just totally screwed everyone over this week. Yeah, he's also just the worst part of him is that he seems to be like so convinced that he's this expert operator while all it takes to recruit him over to the Axe Capital side of things is just Axe saying the word family over dinner. And he thinks that he's this like three-dimensional, five-dimensional chess player when really he's playing like not even checkers, probably just like tic-tac-toe. He's just not... Like, the gap between what Spiros thinks he is and what he actually is might be bigger than for anyone else in this show, and that's really saying a lot. So now that we've given out our awards, I think it's time to ask what we're looking for for next week. So what are you looking forward to? So something that we need to see soon, just by virtue of not having a lot of episodes left, is Russian oligarch John Malkovich. He's going to show up as, I assume, a Putin-esque character that's probably going to ruffle Axe's feathers a bit. And, I mean, I'm really excited that we're going to get him, and I'd like to get him soon. I believe he's supposed to show up for three episodes, and we've got four remaining, so it's only a matter of time. Oh, we only have four remaining. That's so, that's so, what a bummer, but... Oh, wait, oh, actually, I might be wrong. Isn't Billy in 12 episodes, season 10? Oh, okay. Well, that was a real emotional roller coaster. (laughs) But, you know, I also think something... <laughs> just, you know, 22 episode season next year. But I do think one of the things we can look forward to with John Malkovich showing up is that this was an episode almost exclusively dedicated to Billions Long Game. There was like very little in the way of a fun, self-contained episodic adventure or something like Wags trying to get a burial plot or Taylor having a trip out to Silicon Valley. So I'm I'm hoping a John Malkovich character will play into you know, some stalling for the long game, some some levity relative to some real dark dark times for all main characters. I just I just want some hijinks, you know. Oh, a hundred percent. And I think another thing that the show has alluded to is perhaps flashing back to when Chuck and X first met, because Wendy also talks about it a couple episodes ago and how it seemed like they got along at first, and then something just happened. And I just love to know what that moment is. I don't want them to keep us in the dark. I want to know what that first encounter was like. And um, it wasn't that long ago, so it's not like you have to put Paul Giamatti or Damien Lewis in any weird makeup. Not that Damien Lewis isn't experienced enough. I was about to say. (laughs) (laughs) That's like all I want. You know, we know he's game. Just get everyone in some like weird CGI, some prosthetics, some like wigs. I want to see what like a super tacky young axe in like early aughts New York looks like. But 
On that note, I think this brings this Recapables podcast to an end. Miles, thank you so much for joining me. Thank you for having me. Thank you so much for listening. We will be back next week to join the Billions characters for more adventures in the financial and legal spheres of New York City's power elite. Our theme song was made by our friends at songfinch.com. Check out Songfinch to turn your stories, memories, and feelings into a -a one-of-a-kind song by professional musicians. It makes the perfect gift for any occasion. songfinch.com. 